GP Insights, a health cert podcast. Practical advice for busy GPs on how to treat with confidence and grow their practice. So welcome to uh, our podcast, the, the latest in our series, and we've got a real treat today to share with you. I'm talking to Dr. Jeremy Hudson, and uh, I don't want to make anybody too upset, but Jeremy's currently at home on Magnetic Island off the uh, tropical far north Queensland coast, uh, living the dream, I would dare to say. Jeremy, welcome. Nice to see you and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much, David. It's fantastic to be invited. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. So look, we've got a, a bunch of interesting stuff to chat about today, but why don't we just start by letting our listeners um, know a little bit more about you, Jeremy, a bit of personal stuff, if you don't mind, you know, where you where you're from, where you grew up, your your sort of medical journey. Um, just just give folks a, a bit of a personal perspective, if you would. Ah, sure. Well, I graduated from New Zealand and uh, soon afterwards had a very cold summer and decided Australia was the place to move to with 70% of my graduating class. And I think pretty naturally just gravitated towards rural work and general practice work before specializing more in skin and skin cancer. Yeah. And uh, I suppose with this sort of job, your interests just lead you where they will. And it's uh, something that I've followed over the last 10 or 15 years or so. And uh, currently, yes, I do have a few positions in terms of education and research and clinical work in Australia at this point. So you did you did GP training in Australia or how did that go? Uh, that's right. Yes. So based in Townsville, primarily uh, worked as a remote locum and reliever to places like the Cape with the Flying Doctors, uh, right. remote Tasmania. Yeah. The hinterland of the Sunshine Coast are so all, you know, beautiful locations. Yeah. Uh, but can be a bit daunting when you're the only one there having to deal with a full range of medical presentations, including skin. Right. And how long did you do all, all that for before you sort of settled in, in Townsville? Well, I have to say Townsville was more getting married and meeting my wife and then days of gallivanting kind of stops there. Uh, right. So I've been uh, based in Townsville solidly at least six years, I would say. Right. Right. And tell us that that's great, Jeremy. T tell us a little bit about your your practice um, in Townsville. How, how does how do, how's your practice structured? What do you do? Right. Well, I was quite lucky, really. Uh, I worked full time as a skin cancer doctor for about the last five or six years. And then yeah. last year I was given an offer for some industry funding uh, where we've essentially set up a new research based clinic in Townsville. And the point of this was to focus on GPs and dermatologists uh, to do a clinic where we'd be testing a lot of the new technology coming into Australia, such as artificial intelligence and imaging for the detection of melanomas and, and how this applies to rural and remote work. Yeah. Uh, so we see the full range of standard patients that I think any skin cancer practitioner would, but we've got that additional bit of funding where we can actually Type, try prototypes out, uh, feedback about new bits of equipment, which of course is making a fairly big scene now in the last 12 months in Australia in terms of artificial intelligence imaging. Yeah, for sure. So I'd like to come, um, come on to that stuff uh, just in a few minutes, if I, if I may. Give us a sense before we dive into that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what, what sort of patients do you see in the clinic? What are you, you're just unreferred walk-in primary care clinics. What's the spectrum of disease uh, in Townsville and that, that you're seeing? Look, I think like most 
GPs in Australia, we see an immense variety of patients from children to even palliative patients in the community with recurrent skin cancers. Yep. And I think like most GPs, I'll see about 90% of that myself. It's anything from routine skin checks up to more complicated management and coordinating with other GPs and specialists. Mm. Uh, so I think really with our positions as GPs, what we're doing is just holistically managing these patients, doing what surgery we can do, uh, referring on what we can at our confidence level. Uh, you know, we do the full level of flaps and grafts. Um, because of the research funding we have, we do take it a bit further. So we deal with a lot of high risk cases. Uh, right. We work hand in hand with genetics groups and international research uh, locations like the University of Heidelberg in Switzerland. Uh, so we occasionally do have patients flying up from Sydney or from ringing from overseas because they want to know about some of the new trials we're running or, or we can help coordinate their care with international research as well. Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. So, so let, let's um, explore a little bit of that uh, more academic stuff that, that you're doing. Let, let me start, if I may, um, by, by getting your perspective on how skin cancer practice has changed. So to set the scene here, you know, myself, um, I, I started doing, doing skin cancer uh, when I was um, Dean of Medicine at, at UQ, um, and that's about oh, 18 years ago, I guess, when I started. Um, and, you know, in those days, it really was a no-technology um, clinical practice. Um, some, of, some of the guys were using some of the early imaging, mainly as a kind of image capture and, and, and storage. Um, and there was the, it was the early interest that, you know, could these algorithms maybe nudge you in a particular direction? But I didn't use digital imaging of any form for, for, for many years in primary care skin cancer. How is, how is your practice shifted over time? And give us a sense of where it's got to now, Jeremy. Yes, and that's an excellent point, because I think the entire basis of GPs managing skin cancer essentially is seeing the patient face to face, yeah. talking to the patient and using a dermatoscope. Yeah. Uh, because end of the day, analog looking through a hard lens has always been the real, you know, primary decision making process, I think, in the last maybe 10 years. And it's only now that the technology is improving and we have higher resolution uh, imaging, we have greater magnification and augmented imaging that we're saying, okay, how do we diagnose melanomas a bit earlier? And which yeah. patients do we actually apply this in? So I don't think artificial intelligence imaging, even though it is an amazing, amazing uh, new development, mm the basis still has to be GPs seeing patients, knowing what they're looking for, seeing a good number, talking to their colleagues. Yeah. Uh, GPs are really the workhorse in Australia in terms of diagnosing melanomas. Yeah. And, and technology is not a substitute for that in any way. It's, it's an augmentation, right? Correct, yeah. 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 So what kit do you have in your practice, Jeremy? Make us all a little bit jealous. Okay, well, look, uh, we actually got quite a bit of funding. So initially we were actually given about eight and a half million dollars funding to say, get what you want 
which was a bit of a dream come true. Yeah. And we had a lot of very expensive equipment lined up. And in the end, I actually made the conscious decision to get a German device called the uh, PhotoFinder. Yep. And uh, the PhotoFinder is one of these German machines that's relatively inexpensive in the vast scheme of things. It's designed German, you know, simple, works well, yeah. uh, does 2D imaging at high resolution. And my feeling was this is the sort of thing that most GPs, if they're going to use, they're going to use something that's accessible, cheap. You can literally put it in a car and drive it to a remote clinic. Right. Uh, so that was more my interest rather than more of the 3D imaging that I did have funding for, but my feeling was it's not going to benefit GPs as much at this yeah. point in time. Right. Mm. And of course, we have a lot of new prototype bits. We had one new prototype lens occur uh, coming yesterday, and I'll, uh, we're going to do a more of an announcement on that one in the next week or so, because very interesting new leaps with the technology we're using. Okay. Well, when you've done that, we'll, we'll get you back on the podcast and get you to tell us a little bit about it. Tell Thanks. us about how you use the photo finder in your practice. What, what's your, you know, kind of for our, for our listeners, you know, a sense of uh, what, what would be kind of now normal practice and then where, where do you think it might go? Start with now and then give us a glimpse into the future. Okay. And, and not to take credit away from GPs in, in Australia, because artificial intelligence has been used for about a year now by other GPs down south. Yeah. Uh, we work with more prototype versions of the artificial intelligence in the machine. Um, I would say there's a lot of community interest with it. Yeah. And obviously for people who own businesses, there's a lot of business interest with it. Yeah. Uh, practically speaking, I turn away about 90% of the patients who want it because right. I don't feel it's justified. There are some good studies out now that say sequential imaging in some people is valuable, that artificial intelligence can work at a level comparable to international dermatologists for yeah. diagnosis with sensitivity. Sure. Uh, but the research is really just turning that corner where it's proven to work well enough for clinical application. And that's, that's where we've been probably the last six months. Yeah. So uh, I prefer to say what benefits the patient and I will offer it to patients who have multiple nevi where they find it's difficult to track them or yeah. they may have dysplastic mole syndrome previous history of melanoma uh familial melanoma or genetic syndromes yeah and of course we have this new technology by the melanoma institute of australia the melanoma nomogram software where you can now put in details and say well what's the patient's likelihood compared to the Australian data set, you can, you can put in their age and sex and sun exposure and moles and say, well, what is their statistical objective likelihood of getting a melanoma? Yeah. And that is also very useful in the decision-making process. Yeah. Uh, so it's very much not something I recommend to everyone. Uh, mm. No. Um, personally, I would always see a patient first for a skin check. It's not a substitute. Okay. I'd advise them to get a baseline set of imaging afterwards yeah. and then the real value of the machine occurs over time um, as it tracks their moles looks for minute developments and there will be a few announcements i think in the next six months about the size of melanomas that have been found using this machine yeah but uh one thing i'm very wary of with the clinic is reliance on the ai so we're making a very very deliberate decision that we will never look at the report 
of this machine until we've done a full check. So we're accountable because AI bias and de-skilling is definitely something that's been proven to occur if you sure. if you just get people in and image them and look at the report. And that has been an argument by some companies and, and sort of business flow models, but I personally uh, argue against that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, the skills degradation. I, I have a very good friend who's a pilot and he says the same happens with autopilots. The more they put the planes on autopilot, you know, if they don't, you know, if he doesn't do the takeoff and landing it often enough, he get, gets a bit rusty, you know, <laughs> it's a real issue, right? Yeah. Um, so, so let me, add, so that, that's really interesting. So, uh, and I, you know, as you would know, there was a, there's a very impactful paper in the latest um, JAMA dermatology from uh, Anne Cust and her colleagues on, on high risk melanoma screening and total body photography and sequential imaging, et cetera. I mean, I, I, I must say, I, I found there, that that group's work and other groups work in that space. For me, to use your language, we've turned a corner quite recently, in my view. Let me test this with you. So here, yeah. this is a hypothesis. I mean, you know, a few years ago, you basically, I, 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 my view was there was no need to risk stratify patients. Just mm -hmm. do it, get a skin check, anything that looks a bit dodgy, get the dermoscope out, away you go, kind of thing. A little bit crude, but mm -hmm. not, not far off. Yeah. I, 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 my, my hypothesis question to you is, um, I think we should be doing a formal risk stratification now for every patient. And that mm -hmm. we actually are at the cusp of having to uh, develop quite different pathways of care for people with different levels of risk uh, in, in Australian primary care. True or false? Please oh, discuss. <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, I'm going to completely agree with you. So no, no debate there. <laughs> right. uh, I think the education that we receive in our training about who needs skin checks who's at high risk is simplistic. It's a good baseline, but it should by no way guide decision-making because the amount of variability you get individual to individual in the risk can be massive, yeah. especially once you start getting into what is who has dysplastic mall syndrome, yeah. who's likely to have genetic mutations, do you test for these? Yeah. And uh, yes, we're cracking along and making progress with this research at an astounding rate. Yeah. And I think six, six months ago, I was giving different advice about genetic screening. Yeah. Um, and the difficulty I'm finding, and I need some very good public health doctors such as yourself to help me with this, is we can identify all of these individual risk factors that say, well, you know, you have a lot of solar lentigos, this increases the risk of a regional melanoma. You've got a family history that increases it by this much, but how do you actually add those together? Very difficult from a statistical point of view, because yeah. if you took all of those as objective risk, uh, relative risks and add them together, a lot of my patients would have 200 times risk of having a melanoma. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I think there's, there's very much a need to be doing this. Um, and my hope is uh, with some of the work we're doing with imaging, uh, and with some of the main pathology providers in Australia, that we can begin to log some of these bits of information in a way that GPs will get CPD point accreditation as part of their own self-analysis uh, right. and, and reviewing their own standards and use that data to generate more information on, you know, what's that going to tell us about who needs to be screened when? But obviously it's a huge job, but we need everyone to sort of work together on that. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, that, that's very, very helpful. I, mean, I, I think, you know, I, I agree with you. I think this is a really exciting time to be involved in skin cancer um, in Australian primary care. I, I want to change tack uh, in, a, in a moment uh, and just talk to you about, you know, work the college is doing and that, that you're, you're leading in, in special interests and so on. Before we do that, is there, is there anything else you'd want to say about the imaging and the AI and you know what you you might speculate about what the, the the next couple of years or even a little bit more might might hold for us what's um, you know you're at the forefront of this stuff what do you what do you think might be coming over the horizon mm. well i sat down last night with one of the main uh, managers of the german research group to talk about this and we talked about an hour and every five minutes we came up with a new research idea yeah so my main thoughts are the amount of research we can generate now is so incredibly large that what we really need is gps to be able to contribute to this to put in images if we're really going to be generating research data effectively and quickly right. um, in terms of the ai machine itself wow well i mean um I think we're at the point where the machines can be used rurally and remotely. We're going to be trying some pilots on that. Yeah. But the point is for your average GP to want to use that. I mean, A, they need a good level of training to begin with. And B, the machines need to be accessible and affordable yeah. and fairly break proof. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, yeah, we need to start at the basics, but the potential is just overwhelming sometimes that there's so much we can choose from. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's very exciting stuff. I mean, I, I think as you've hinted at, it, you read the papers on AI, you, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's amazing and fascinating and almost science fiction. And then you bump into research that suggests that actually it's also that, you know, the, the AI algorithms can be stupid. If you just turn the, turn the image around, it gets confused. So, you know, it's both amazing and a little bit, you know, we're at the start of this journey, right? Not at the end. But to, to me, it's, it's difficult to imagine a future that's probably not too far off where, where we have imaging and, and image recognition that has incredibly high diagnostic accuracy and that supports us in our practice. Yes, 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 very much so. And there are ethical and moral and clinical considerations that all come into this. But yeah. I would say my feeling is knowing how these AIs work, how a, what we call a convolutional neural network, a CNN works, yeah. and how much data it requires to increase its accuracy exponentially, we're at the point where clinically it's incredibly applicable. Yeah. And uh, yes, an AI won't be able to say at this point, oh, that's a piece of dried chocolate ice cream on your foot. You yeah. know, that's what it still needs us for. Yeah. Uh, or what's an appropriate clinical decision. But um, yes, there's a lot of fantasy, a lot of science fiction always involved in, in AI, maybe a lot of misconception as well. And uh, it always fascinates me, people's opinions and the public's opinion and doctor's opinion about these machines and how magical they are. But, but yeah, <laughs> I think we could talk for a long time about this. But yeah, it's a fascinating topic. No, topic for, for another podcast. So let, let's move on as our final topic for today. Give us a sense of what you're doing in the college, the special interest groups, your, your perspectives on, uh, 
you know, GPs and skin cancer training, et cetera. T tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, uh, look, as we all probably feel here in Australia, Australian GPs are some of the world's best in terms of dealing with the majority of skin cancer, including melanoma. So even in rural areas, GPs are dealing with 90 to 100 percent of melanomas. And the College of Dermatologists has recognized this and been very supportive of the RACGP with education and standards. Um, but we're also reaching this sort of a nexus point where the College of Dermatologists has also self-identified that they have limited training positions. Their specialists are aging and retiring. Most dermatologists are private billing. They're city-based. Uh, there's a huge load of inflammatory skin conditions to be seen. So it's a very good question. Where do we go here in terms of GPs? Yeah. Um, and of course, Australia's educational resources and research are hugely GP based. I mean, like Health Cert and yourself being a GP originally, yeah. and uh, RICGP has its new certificate of primary dermatology. So GPs have a lot of good choice in terms of education. Uh, yeah. So yes, I mean, with the, with the portfolio I have with the RACGP, part of that, we're, we're going to be doing a national review of education in medical schools through postgraduate training, right. through GP training, see what, what actually gets taught. How do we make this a little bit more uh, flowing? Um, because of course, we do have the world's highest rates of skin cancer in Australia. Um, and RACGP, uh, it has been very supportive and does recognize that GPs have a lot of different interests. Once you learn what you need to know, you then focus into your own area. So the RACGP has about 31 different specific interest group ranging from, from veterans health to pediatric to psychology and dermatology, which includes skin cancer, cosmetics, and general dermatology. Um, right. So the, the dermatology group that I'm the chair of has about two and a half thousand uh, active members. Yep. And really what we do is uh, we review the level of education, standards, uh, we liaise a lot with the Department of Health, Medicare, the Melanoma Institute, the Melanoma Patients Association, um, members of parliament to advocate for GP education and support. Uh, and so really now what the RSUGP has recently done is they're, going, they're saying, we are actually going to formally recognize GP specialties. Right. So this is a very big move coming through this year and dermatology is going to be essentially one one of the two pilots for this right. so uh you if you practice enough skin or skin cancer and you're recognized a certain way the rscgp will formally say yes we recognize your qualifications and uh that's a very interesting topic in its own in terms of where we go from there yeah uh, yeah very very interesting that's um that's quite a quite a tipping point for the profession Yes, yes. And I think there was a big tipping point last year as well with the uh, National Cancer Council guidelines, where really for the first time they said that GPs who do get referred a large number of skin cancer patients are recognized by them as specialists, yeah. as a definition. And that's, that's, that's fantastic. Because look, the GPs here are great with skin cancer. They do a huge amount of work. And I think it's fantastic that they're getting recognized for this and now we have to get down to the nitty-gritty and say well how much do we need to standardize this and how do we look sure. at it yeah because our, our patients and the community rely on us to um, have their best interests at heart and to you know not try and uh, confuse them right with our labeling uh, for ourselves and so on and uh, 
you know, that, that our patients deserve that from us. So that's wonderful, Jeremy. Look, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's quite fascinating. You're clearly working in a beautiful part of the country and the world and doing some amazing stuff. Thank you for all you do and sharing it with us. And we'll we'll definitely have you back on in, in due course to hear more about it in, in detail. Jeremy, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. And, and sorry, if I may just add one other thing is that Please. any GP can join the RACGP special interest group for dermatology. Yep. So if anyone has a particular point where they say, I would prefer to do things this way, you can literally join the dermatology group and directly talk to me in the RACGP to put new protocols and reviews in place. So it's a very good way to directly impact what affects you on your day-to-day -day work. And okay. uh, you can just Google RACGP specific interest dermatology and you'll, we can get you in the group within a fortnight. <laughs> all right, well, I will, be, I will do that straight after this call and I would encourage all of our listeners to do exactly the same. Oh, lovely, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe so you can get updates whenever we post more. And please share it with others. And for more info, please go to helpsert.com.